The globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Hey! It's Wednesday, January 26th. Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary. If you're Canadian and you've ever taken psychedelics, a recently launched survey is looking for you. My guest today is Philippe Lucas, Ph.D., He's a cannabis and psychedelic researcher and the president of Sabi Mind, a clinic group focused on increasing access to psychedelic-assisted therapy. Stay tuned for my conversation with Philippe. We've known each other for about 10 years, and this is a bit of a full-circle moment for us to be speaking on air about this Canadian psychedelic survey. Stay tuned for our conversation. And if you want to go check out the psychedelic survey, just search Canadian Psychedelic Survey. You'll find a couple of articles and links. Go go check it out. I'm going to start off the show today with some new music from Matt the Alien. Matt the Alien reached out to me in my Instagram messages and we were chatting a bit this morning and he told me he has a whole bunch of new music to come out this year we're going to listen to a new track called out the underground this is matt the alien on rave dad's diary
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary. Philippe Lucas, PhD, is a cannabis and psychedelic researcher and president of Sabi Mind, a clinic group focused on increasing access to psychedelic-assisted therapy in the treatment of mental health, pain, and problematic substance use. Sabi Mind, along with partners MAPS Canada, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and psychedelic drug manufacturer Saijin are currently hosting the Canadian Psychedelic Survey. Philippe, welcome to Rave Dad's Diary. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the interest in this work and research. I want to talk quickly about how you and I know each other. I met you about 10 years ago when I was in journalism school, and I was writing a piece about medical cannabis, and one of my professors suggested uh, that they get in touch with you on the topic. And that's how we actually first connected. Do you remember that? I do recall that. I, I remember that, you know, that, that this was a time when there was a lot of uh, ongoing debate about medical cannabis, how the laws were going to be applied and change. And, and uh, you know, we were trying to tackle ongoing uh, issues to access. And at the time I was doing medical cannabis research. And I think I was just coming off um, my work running the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, one of uh, Canada's first medical cannabis dispensaries. You went on to work with a a company called Tilray, which is a licensed uh, cannabis uh, producer. Um, uh, Can you just talk maybe a, a teeny bit about that and what you were kind of up to there in the past 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. I started at Tilray in 2014. Um, I was employee number two. They were opening up in uh, Nanaimo and I lived in Victoria. So it was in close proximity. And um, I ultimately ended up overseeing the Tilray clinical and observational research program, as well as doing a lot of um, Tilray's public relations and government relations work. I was a VP Global Patient Research and Access for for Tilray um, over uh, about a seven and a half year period and had an opportunity to conduct very uh, large scale observational studies on the the use of medical cannabis to oversee a really robust international uh, clinical uh, medical cannabis program and, uh, and really the great opportunity to travel around the world, meet patients around the world and advocate for increased access to patients uh, yeah, uh, 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 all over the world, in Latin America, in Europe, and uh, in Australia. Over the past 10 years, uh, you and I have stayed in touch regularly uh, and uh, through through Base Coast Festival, actually, where uh, you have been presenting when the festival is, is happening. You've been helping uh, bring together psychedelic researchers and experts to present uh, really interesting uh, research and findings at the festival over the past few years. And and that's how we've stayed in touch. I'm just curious, tying this back to Rave Dad's diary, um, you know, th- there's obviously a strong relationship between the uh, festival communities in the Pacific Northwest and uh, the the current of, of uh, and reemergence of psychedelic research. Uh, can you just talk to that maybe for a moment uh, about the, the parallels there? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, always going to be grateful to you, Paul, for uh, bringing me into Base Coast in many ways. I had an opportunity to attend Base Coast on its first year in Merit, which I think was way back in 2013. Does that sound about right? Uh, 2012, uh, actually, I think. 2012, thanks for correcting me. So uh, I've never been to the, uh, um, when, it, what, when it was um, uh, in Squamish, but I uh, heard, I think, through you about the festival at that point and had a few friends who were attending and, and kind of in a last minute way decided to uh, rush out there solo and, uh, and, and attend the festival. The dance community had always been really, really, really important to me. I, I quit drinking in 1995 when I was diagnosed with hepatitis C and the dance community um, presented me an alternative space where, which wasn't so alcohol focused compared to bars and, and some of the local, you know, more, more kind of uh, uh, dance clubs and that kind of thing. So I really, really appreciated the opportunity to participate and to attend Base Coast in 2012, but I immediately fell in love with the festival. And I remember, I think the day I got back sending you an email saying, I had an incredible time. Thank you so much how can I be a bigger part or contribute to this? And I think the next year I ended up doing uh, a solo presentation on medical cannabis uh, and therapeutic applications for medical cannabis. And that the following year turned that into what uh, ultimately became a really broad-based panel on therapeutic applications for cannabis and psychedelics. And I think I did that for six or seven years and it became such a huge part of my summer in many ways it, it became the, the signal or the marker that summer was starting for me was when I'd pack up and, and head up to Base Coast. And it was always one of my absolute favorite places to present. I've had chances to present in front of our Canadian Senate and the BC Supreme Court and the House of Commons and the governments around the world. But that Base Coast presentation to, uh, uh, to a group that had more experiential experience with cannabis and psychedelics, and that came to it from that point of view, uh, it, it continues to be one of my favorite uh, presentation opportunities. And uh, in fact, uh, after two years of Base Coast not taking place, put in a, a panel presentation uh, for this summer, and hopefully Omicron and other variants will allow the festival to go ahead. And uh, I just can't wait to uh, to get back to Merit and get back to, to Base Coast and do that. And this year, we have the added bonus of having uh, your wife uh, and partner, Sarah, uh, take part in the panel as well, or at least be part of the panel that we submitted uh, for consideration in her work at Savvy Mine as the patient experience specialist. It's a really interesting full circle trip, uh, our relationship, and uh, I'm glad that we could capture that uh in audio for Rave Dad's Diary because, um, you know, it's uh, it's one for the books. You reached out to me um, uh, last year in 2021, and uh, it's funny. We reached out to each other in the exact same 24-hour interval about psychedelics. And uh, fast forward to January 2022, uh, we're talking now. Uh, and by the way, I'm talking to Philippe Lucas, a cannabis and psychedelic researcher and president of Sabi Mind. Uh, I want to talk about this Canadian psychedelic survey. Uh, how long has this survey of Canadian psychedelic use been something that you have wanted to bring into the world? 
It's been a while. So in in the studies that I did on medical cannabis, I'm always interested in what we call community-defined evidence, which is the way that um, end users and um, uh, of medical cannabis or psychedelics conceptualize their use. I think that almost everything that we know about the therapeutic applications for cannabis and therapeutic applications for psychedelics, we know because patients have shared their experiences and shared their stories often from non-clinical settings, and really science is just trying to catch up by now doing clinical trials and other studies in order to validate what we've heard from end users in terms of the therapeutic benefits of these different substances. So uh, I've participated in a number of psychedelic surveys over the years, you know, uh, folks asking about microdosing and and different patterns of use, but I, I felt that no one had put together yet a really broad-based survey of psychedelic use. When the government does surveys on substance use, psychedelics is just one of the substances that you check. Um, and, uh, and, and it's not very detailed. And I thought, I, I, I'm a big believer that knowledge on uh, end-user knowledge, knowing how people use these substances, how they access them, different patterns of use, different self-reported impacts um, are really important in developing policies that are evidence-based in order to increase access to some of these uh, substances within a safe legal setting. And so I've started thinking about this survey well over a year ago, but the real hard work on it began in September. And I was lucky to have the the background of doing large-scale cannabis, national cannabis surveys in the past for patients and use some of the experience that I had in that to develop the, uh, the Canadian psychedelic survey. And, and really the benefit of this survey, you know, one of the distinguishing features is that it involves eight um, academic collaborators or eight, eight academic collaborations uh, from uh, very high level academics in Canada and the U.S. who contributed questions in their area of specialty. Uh, and I'd be happy to, to go into that in more detail if you like. Yeah. Well, before you go into that detail, uh, I, I want to point out that this survey is available for all Canadians to take until this Friday, January 28th at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, so this survey, uh, like you said, uh, it intends to provide researchers with a better understanding of psychedelic use in Canada and the impacts of psychedelics on physical and psychological health. Before we we go further into your, your methodology, can we just define psychedelics? What are we talking about when we say psychedelics? Wow, what a great question. I, I love that question. I, I think that it's interesting, these ongoing debates, and I've been involved in in psychedelics in Canada, uh, North America for some time. And I remember in the early 2000s, we were actually having a debate as to whether the term psychedelic was useful to moving forward psychedelic research or otherwise. There was a sense that it carried a lot of baggage, the same way that marijuana has now really shifted. Most people talk about marijuana, we say cannabis instead. There was some consideration that maybe we had to kind of uh, jettison the term psychedelic and start using empathogen or entheogen and some of the other common uh, uh, terms that are now used to describe these individual agents. But I, I do want to point out that how exciting it is that the term psychedelic won out. This term uh, framed by uh, uh, Osmond, you know, uh, in, a, in a dialogue in yes. the 50s that he was having. 
with uh, with Aldous Huxley. Was it not? He yeah. was he was writing back and forth with Aldous Huxley, and uh, exactly, and it was the exactly. rhyme, the rhyming that, couplet. Yeah, the exciting thing about to me about that is that Oxford, Yale, Harvard now have psychedelic research center. Johns Hopkins, you know, Canadian universities, McGill uh, and UBC are now have, you know, psychedelic research centers or departments that are studying psychedelics. They're not studying entheogens or pathogens or anything else. They're not shrouding this term in any way. Uh, the term psychedelics won out. So I think that that's, that's kind of exciting and, and really neat. So to, to, to answer your question on the broadest term, when we're talking about psychedelics, we're talking about substances that create an, uh, an altered state of conscious or non-ordinary reality and there's still some ongoing debate about their, you know, about classical psychedelics versus non-classical psychedelics. Some people split them out as plant-derived psychedelics like ayahuasca, uh, psilocybin. Um, and, and for some reason, we lump LSD in there, even though it's clearly lab synthesized, because, of course, it, it can be manufactured via ergot, etc. But those are typically the classical psychedelics of plant-derived plus LSD. And then um, people talk about um, uh, kind of non-classical psychedelics. They talk about MDMA, typically ketamine, um, 2CB, and some of the new research chemicals that are coming out as well uh, and emerging uh, more and more these days, as well as the non-classical psychedelics. I, 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 I honestly think that those are very thin, porous lines, and I don't think that those distinctions uh, help us out a lot in terms of research or the work that we're doing or the advocacy that we're doing to make sure that uh, that people have safe a- safe access to these substances. So I think it's kind of an artificial delineation, but uh, but that's that's typically the way that it's uh, discussed. I did the survey. I completed it last night. It uh, you know takes a, a little chunk of time to focus on it. It's very fun. It it brought back a lot of memories. And it definitely gave me a sense of euphoria and, and well-being while I was filling it out. Uh, you ask questions about psychedelics that I, I personally had to really think about. Um, can you talk a little bit about now uh, about how the, the survey was developed and, and the methodology uh, without, you know, uh, saying anything that would maybe lead people who are uh, <laughs> hoping to do this uh, survey now? Yeah, absolutely. I want to start out by thanking everyone who has filled out the survey. So far, we have 2,583 responses from all across Canada. It's open to all Canadians uh, 19 years and over who have tried psychedelics. And it's a real opportunity for the psychedelic community to lend their voice and lend their expertise uh, to, to a better understanding of how psychedelics are used, how they impact people uh, subjectively and objectively, uh, both for therapeutic purposes as well as non-therapeutic purposes, macrodose, microdose. So the whole, the idea of this survey, and we're never going to be able to capture the plurality of experiences in psychedelics. I want to be clear about that. You know, I think that psychedelic experiences are uniquely individual, um, despite some commonalities like feeling, uh, immersive closeness with others or with nature uh generally they're very individualized experiences we don't we we don't pretend to be trying to capture um uh, everyone's experience and in all detail but what we are hoping to do by asking specifically about eight uh, uh about patterns of use with 11 psychedelics 
um, ranging from, you know, 2CB all the way to, uh, to nitrous oxide, uh, psilocybin, MDMA, all the classic ones as well, um, is to try and really um, gain an understanding about how Canadians are accessing psychedelics, their patterns of use, not just of psychedelics themselves, but I'm, I'm very interested as a public health researcher um, and in use of other substances along with psychedelics. So we ask about use two hours before use of psychedelic. Do you take a few beers before you take a mushroom trip in a, in a, a kind of rave-like setting? At the end of a psychedelic journey, do you take a, a benzodiazepine to help you sleep uh, afterwards or to help you come down? So we're actually asking about detailed patterns of use before, d- during, and after uh, the use of individual psychedelics. And, uh, and we're also asking things about like the impact uh, that psychedelic use overall has had on uh, the use of other substances. We've heard about people spontaneously uh, quitting tobacco use or reducing their alcohol use following uh, initiation with the use of psychedelics. So we're interested in looking at that as well. Um, I think it's important for people in, in public health and otherwise and our policymakers to understand that a lot of the time when people are using substances like psychedelics, it's not just an add-on to other recreational uh, substances. They might be using alcohol, tobacco, or anything else. A lot of the time, it can present an actual safer substitute uh, to other substances that may have more harms associated with them from a public health standpoint. Uh, So we're really interested in looking at all of that. But we're also asking some questions that I don't think have been asked before, such as preference between synthetic psychedelics and naturally sourced psychedelics. So if you had an option of using psilocybin or psilocin produced in a lab versus, uh, you know, stuff grown in a, well, basically in a lab setting these days, because that's where legal psychedelics are produced, but the uh, mushroom versus a, a synthetic lab produced uh, psychedelic, which would you choose? Do you have a preference or not? And so those are interesting questions when you're looking at the environmental impacts, for example, of collecting 5-MAO-DMT from toads or uh, harvesting ayahuasca from the ayahuasca vine in uh, the Amazonian basin. These these questions have deep implications on the sustainability of the psychedelic industry, but of psychedelic use overall as it it expands around the world. Um, And we this study really benefits from having uh, collaborations from, for example, Michael Van Ameringen, who's a psychiatrist from McMaster, who's asking about the impacts on mental health. Eric Barron, who's a, a headache and migraine specialist from uh, uh, from Cleveland Clinic, he's asking about headaches and migraines. Peter Hendricks, who's um, uh, at the University of Alabama and is actually part of a team that got NIH funding to study psilocybin as a treatment for tobacco nicotine dependence. Uh, He's asking questions about tobacco nicotine use. David Yaden from Johns Hopkins, um, who's who's created this amazing awe scale to try and capture the the breadth and scope of psychedelic experiences. He's allowed us to use the awe scale in this survey. Uh, Kevin Boinke, who's an old friend and colleague, uh, asking about patterns of use and access to psychedelics. Uh, Sarah Daniels um, from University of British Columbia, who has questions about uh, psychedelics and mindfulness practices. Kyle Greenway, an amazing young psychiatrist from McGill University, who's asking specifically about psychedelics and music, a topic that you and I have discussed and we have some interest in, for sure. And uh, Stephanie Lake and Ziva Cooper from UCLA, who are asking about 
patterns of use, but also psychedelic use during uh, COVID, which we're really interested in to see if it's if we've seen changes around COVID as well. So this study benefits. You know, I'm a big believer that. Uh, none of us is as smart at all as all of us. And by bringing in these academic collaborations, we hope to make a much broader contribution to the understanding of psychedelic use uh, by adults, not just in Canada, but but really internationally as well. Because I think a lot of these patterns are, are applicable internationally um, and also uh, have this uh, study lead to multiple publications and therefore uh, have greater impact overall for the data that we're gathering from, uh, you know, from the voice of psychedelic users here in Canada. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and my guest today is fellow Rave Dad, Philippe Lucas, a cannabis and psychedelic researcher and president of Sabi Mind. We're talking about the Canadian Psychedelic Survey, which is running now until this Friday, January 28th at 5 p.m., Mountain Standard Time, and I am interested in what you just said about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, Philippe. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting uh, that uh, you're, you're exploring how people's use of psychedelics is, has been influenced by the pandemic. Uh, anecdotally, uh, I mean, are, are you hearing about people using psychedelics to cope with the pandemic is, uh, and, and I guess I'm speaking to this too. I mean, I took a stroll down 17th Ave in Calgary the other day, and there are posters everywhere for psilocybin mushroom mail order. <laughs> so, I mean, the genie's out of the bottle here, um, yeah, what's what's going on? Do you think people are running to to experience psychedelics if they can't get on a plane and, and go to Mexico right now? Well, I, I'm certainly fascinated to see what our data shows. But I think that anecdotally, what we're seeing is two different things shifting. We're seeing that group psychedelic use, whether it be at dance events, at, you know, at, let's say, you know, using the term rave or at big summer festivals, has clearly been impacted by COVID because those events are simply not taking place. So if you were, you know, someone who was doing ayahuasca every few months in a yurt uh, on the BC West Coast, you're probably not gathering in that yurt with 20 other uh, psychonauts or, or uh, you know, folks who are interested in, in, in having that experience because of COVID. So I certainly know that those gatherings have been impacted and uh and and so i think that that is happening far less around COVID. so that's we're probably gonna see some reduction in patterns of use around that but on the other hand i mean you cite the use of and, and the access to psilocybin right now it's really fascinating that the last two years has seen these kind of peak moments for psilocybin and also i think for ketamine in terms of media attention and being in many ways media darlings, mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think that mental health has become front and center our concerns around mental health. Now, I think that when we start seeing attention to mental health, you know, policymakers are talking about it and physicians and, you know, we're, we're now, I think that COVID has made us reconceptualize mental health and see that rather than being a subcomponent of physical health, it's the umbrella. If you don't have good mental health, your physical health will suffer unquestionably. And so to me, mental health is actually under which physical health sits. And I think that that attention to mental health 
at a time when psychedelic assisted therapies are really coming to the fore because of phase three uh, research that MAPS is doing on MDMA because of ketamine clinics in Canada and the U.S. uh, really emerging as a uh, a potentially safe, effective treatment for for a number of mental health conditions, including uh, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD. Um, And also at the same time, this kind of craze, this microdosing craze that's been happening over the last few years and is really peaking right now. And and as we're seeing through the online access to, to psilocybin, which is, you know, in Canada, there's right now probably... 30 or 40 different companies that um, you can access online and they'll, they'll send you doses of, of psilocybin uh, in macro or macro uh, conditions. There's at least two dispensaries in Vancouver that are openly selling psilocybin right now. And uh, so we've got almost a gray market decriminalized state around psilocybin here in Canada. And so I think that all of these forces are coming together to, to suggest that I think that if we were to have done this poll before and then after the COVID start, we would probably see decline in large-scale um, uh, macro-dose use of psychedelics within group settings, um, but an increase in the micro-use of psychedelics like psilocybin uh, over that same period as well. And I want to be clear, Paul, I mean, you and I are traveling in sometimes unique circles. Most Canadians who have tried psychedelics will have tried sub-impact doses using uh, using a, a microdosing rather than macrodosing. It's still a very small percentage of the adult population in Canada that's actually had a macrodose uh, altered state of conscious psychedelic experience. It's very, very interesting. I... I already need to book a call with you in the future after you've crunched the numbers because I am dying to see what these trends are <laughs> that are exposed in this in this survey. Um, you were mentioning other surveys that you know that have been done in the world. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's other like data sets that you're excited to kind of compare and contrast uh, uh, this this data with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's been a really interesting survey of microdosing of psychedelics that was headed up by a combination of Canadian and U.S. academics. And they used um, an app in order to track the way that people were microdosing. That's led by uh, Pam Criscow, um, uh, who's an MD on, here on Vancouver Island, and uh, her partner, Paul Stamets. Uh, famously, um, uh, mycologist, of course, and um, one of the uh, leading minds when it comes to the use of mushrooms in general, but psychedelics uh, uh, more specifically uh, for health reasons and uh, and spiritual development, and uh, you, know, um, you know, definitely, definitely fascinating folks, along with a colleague of mine, uh, Zach Walsh. So they've been doing fascinating research on on microdosing, and I'd be very interested in comparing. Uh, our data and our findings to those as well, but also looking to, you know, to the next iteration of this uh, Canadian psychedelic study, we do hope to run it every two years so that we can look at changes in attitudes, patterns of use, uh, emerging psychedelic compounds as well. Um, and, uh, and so it'll be interesting to compare where we are today and where we are two years from now, uh, now that psychedelics are becoming either legal 
through channels like ketamine clinics are quasi-legal through online access to psilocybin and otherwise. And of course, in the U.S., we're seeing jurisdictions um, which are legalizing plant-based psychedelics. It's an interesting, once again, kind of artificial distinction in my mind, but uh, you've got uh, uh, areas in Colorado and Oregon and California now, regions and cities that are uh, depenalizing the use of psilocybin, ayahuasca, and other plant-based psychedelics. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts their policies and attitudes around the world now that we can gather data more openly uh, from these end users. Philippe Lucas, the Canadian Psychedelic Survey, the first one, concludes this Friday, January 28th at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I just searched Canadian Psychedelic Survey and I was able to find it. Uh, Philippe, here's your last pitch. If anybody's listening and they have used psychedelics and they're Canadian, uh, why should they fill out this survey? Well, to... More than anything else, this is really a chance to share your experiences and your expertise uh, on uh, with psychedelics and impact um, the way that we understand the use of psychedelics, but also the way that we're going to convey this information to policymakers and otherwise. So you, I think that participating in a study like this can actually help positively impact policy down the road. Um, for example, we're asking questions around um, psychedelic-assisted therapy to find out who has cost coverage uh, for these treatments. Right now, unfortunately, legal access to psychedelics through psychedelic-assisted therapy can be cost-prohibitive to a lot of uh, uh, individuals who might benefit from it most. And it's and it savvy, and, and uh, what we'd like to do, and also through industry associations, is to lobby for increased cost coverage through private payers and also through the public payer system. So there's a lot of great reasons to share your experiences, but more than anything else, it's to make sure that this is truly an end-user-defined experience that we're capturing. We want to hear from the actual experts on psychedelic use, um, which are the end-users themselves. Uh, as I mentioned right now, we're at um, 2,582 responses. It's really remarkable to see this kind of response rate. The survey has only been in the field for about 10 days, and uh, anyone else who can fill it out in the next three days would be m- much appreciated. The bigger the data set we get, um, the more validated that data set's going to be and the more useful this data is going to be in, uh, in terms of uh, figuring out how Canadians are using psychedelics, the impact that uh, that they self-report is having on their lives as well. Philippe, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being my guest today on Rave Dad's Diary and all of the best of luck completing the Canadian Psychedelic Survey. <laughs> Paul, I should probably let people know, by the way, that if you, and this is purely optional, but if you put your email in at the end of the survey... You'll be entered into a draw for three $500 gift certificates for Amazon. So uh, those are pretty good odds, actually, when you look at uh, 2,582 or 83 responses so far. So if And that's purely optional. And the survey is otherwise completely anonymous. But if you want to enter your email, you can uh, have a chance to win as well. Uh, the Canadian Psychedelic Survey is available through websites, online, Facebook, um, uh, through Savvy Minds, SciGen, uh, Maps Canada as well. And uh, yeah, so please take the time to fill it out before Friday. Paul, it's great to speak with you on these issues. I really look forward to the next occasion for us to uh, maybe get together again and, and talk about the preliminary results of this survey, which we will know within just the next couple of weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, I'll look forward to sharing those with your listener as well.
Thanks, Philippe. Have a great day. Bye for now. Thank you very much, Paul. Have a great day. Bye. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM, CJSW, and that was my conversation with Philippe Lucas, PhD. He's a cannabis and psychedelic researcher, and we were talking about the Canadian Psychedelic Survey. Go search for it right now and set aside some time today to fill it out. It's pretty fun. We're listening now to music from Toronto's Tush.
Hello, my name is Ohama, and I grew up on a potato farm in Western Canada. And you're listening to CGSW 90.9. FM CJSW you are listening to Rave Dad's Diary that was a classic cut from DJ Spin you scared and before that we heard Wavy Baby from Tush 
I'm going to leave you now with a mix I found on an old hard drive called Random Juke Mix. Uh, I think this is from my old roommate, Fluxo, and uh, we used to live together. And uh, I remember this mix being produced one late foggy night. So uh, we'll finish off with that. Have a great week. Ears Wide Shut is coming up next. Keep it locked. CJSW 90.9 FM. Back in the days when school was not a hassle. Yonkers high, shooting dice in the castle. Back in the days when school was not a hassle. Yonkers high, shooting dice in the castle. Back in the days when school was not a hassle. Yonkers high, shooting dice in the castle. Back in the days when school was not a hassle. Yonkers high, shooting dice in the castle.
At CJSW, it's not 15, love. It's 